Thank you for choosing this podcast from New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo. I hope you're reaching New Heights in Jesus today. Here we go. Some 
And even though we're tired or hurt, still serving the Lord, still putting God first, praise God for that. Um, but that isn't true everywhere. And so we pray that God would have his way and in his kingdom come, his will be done here on the earth as it is in heaven. And so I just pray today for our rich adventure because that's our opportunity in July to get the boogie out. We're going to go uh, like crazy doing some outreaching. Uh, we've got already on the calendar a number of things. Uh, we have three block parties on the calendar, one of which is on Friday night, uh, July 2nd, opposite the fireworks. Uh, we don't have a confirmed location, but we are praying for and looking for this week to be getting the confirmation of the location that it will be uh, on Main Street. So we'll be catching people on the way to the fireworks, which are that night. They've been canceled, they've been uncanceled, so the fireworks. And so that hope is maybe we can get our the old New Heights parking lots on Main Street. Um, but I, I don't know for sure. We have to get permission to be able to do that. So, so if we're one of the businesses on Main Street, we'll give us uh, permission to be on Main Street, catch people on the way to and from fireworks. And then obviously we'll be preaching the gospel, witnessing, and sharing God's love with people that night uh, before the fireworks, 79. Right, 79. Okay. So we got to pray that God opens the door to do that. And then there are two more. One is mid-month, at, and that's actually a lot across the life station. And then the final one will be back here toward the end of the month, and all throughout the month, and all that we're doing, we're going to be inviting people to that last block party. Is more important than inviting them to Jesus, but inviting people to that last block party so we can get them on property, help them know where the church building is, help them know where they can plug in to begin to learn and grow in Christ. Okay? So it's a big deal. It's a lot of work. We know that. We signed up for it. We agreed to it. Uh, also, we've got miniature outreaches, if you will, compared to those block parties. We already have, is it five times doing freezer pops that you put on the calendar? Three for sure. Three, three for sure times Plus on. Plus football games. Which are going to the parks, local parks, giving away freezer pops and witnessing or bottled water or both. And then we have three nights, three Friday nights, where we're going to the park where they're having uh, junior high, basically, right? Elementary. Elementary. Elementary school football practice. And we're partnering with one of the teams that's there. Michael's going to be coaching. Uh, they're going to be there. Correct me if I get this wrong. Offense, defense, line coach, correct? Yeah, we'll put them. Then, uh, okay. All right. So just keep it on the titles. Keep it on the titles there. So that's how it happens. You start doing something. The Lord broadens your tits. You might have done more than you thought you wanted to. So that's going to be on those Friday nights. And again, it's a great opportunity to witness the church from God's support. Uh, that Michael's efforts there because he really thinks he's doing it for God, and that's going to be a ministry of the church, his time there. We're going to support him, and then we'll have an opportunity to witness and share Christ with anybody who wants to listen. And, um, and then there the other team leaders of the church are going to be doing some additional outreaches. Uh, Brother Tony's going to be knocking on, or I'm sorry, a prayer walk in the community witnessing. And so there'll be some opportunities if he can know in advance. He doesn't know that he'll be able to do that because he's out of town a lot for his job. But um, uh, Brother Tony Brister will be going out in the community, uh, prayer walking right around here around the church building. And if he knows in advance enough, then we'll know and then we can join him in that. Um, Brother Tony Tate is going out already. He started going out a couple nights a week. And he's right now been focusing on the South End, but he's going out a couple nights a week witnessing and, and started following up on the needs of New Church homeless. And I will be going out in July following up with needs a new church homeless. So that's the list from the life station where they say, yes, I need a new church home. And so then I'll be inviting people to go out with me for that. So there's going to be a lot going on. And you might call it something additional. You say, I'd like to do this. And if you do that, and in time to let other people join you, then you put out there. And if there's anybody available, we'll join in. We'll all outreach the heck out of the month of July. 
Okay? And just reach. And, and that's the kingdom's love, God's love through the kingdom, going out to try to find people. And then the goal is, at that block party, at the end of the month, we're going to go, yes, this is what God did. We'll be able to talk about how many people we talked to. We'll be able to talk about maybe salvation decisions, the times that you prayed with people, and tell stories about uh, how good God has been through that effort. So that's coming up. I mean, that's, when I say outreach adventure, that's all I'm going to say. When I say that, that's what I'm praying about. Okay? And then, as I said, we'll talk a little bit more at the membership meeting. I don't think we have any motions. Do we have motions? We have one, we have one motion. So it's not going to be a long meeting, but it is going to be an important one. All right? So now we can put that out of our minds, except for as I pray about outreach adventure. And let's pray again. Father in heaven, I am so blessed. We are so blessed to be involved with a church that is looking to you daily. We are so blessed that you've called us out of the multitudes. Lord, I'm grateful that you called me out of my life as it was before I met you. I know you were always there, never far from me, always looking for me, waiting for me, reaching for me. The truth is, I spent 25 years kind of pushing you away. And I'm so grateful, God, that that time came to an end. I'm grateful then that in time, you called our family to be part of New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church, a church that wants to tell people about Jesus, a church that wants to serve and live a life that's giving and kind and, and hard at work for the kingdom of advance, for our Lord. Father, I pray for Outreach Adventure. I pray that we will be faithful. This is something we committed to do, that we'll find a way to be plugged into as much as it, of it as we can. I pray, Lord, that we will have this problem. I pray that the problem will be that so many people want to go out and give away free and pops and witness at the park that we've got to do multiple parks at every one of those times. There certainly are plenty of parks. There'll be plenty of people out. I pray, Lord, that we will have an abundance of volunteers an abundance of open ears and hearts at our block parties. That we'll be able to share the gospel, that we'll be able to see people saved, that we'll be able to baptize people at those block parties. We'll be able to say, hey, these are people who have genuinely followed Jesus Christ and they're plugging in. They want to work to serve God. They want to give their lives over to Jesus. And we'll be able to see them follow believers' baptism even. Lord, from this side of what we're about to undertake, and we still have the last Day vacation Bible school, even that's so important. We know the young people are trying to memorize their verses so they can dump concrete on Brother Mike. And I just pray, Lord, that all that honors you. And that Brother Mike says, we're doing that so that people can remember you, people can remember your word, people can be strengthened. And even as we go through six months focus on meditation, I pray that we will take the time to meditate, to listen to you, to listen to your word, to let it affect us, to ask the simple questions that our brain needs to have to be able to better understand what it is that we've read, what it is that we're seeing, the life in which we live. I pray, Father, that you will glorify yourself through us during this service. I pray for those who should have been here. You wanted them here. You made arrangements. You removed barriers. And if it's our fault, Lord, then we, we ask for forgiveness if it's if it's just a decision that they made, Lord, then we ask your patience with them. We ask your forgiveness to lift them up, encourage them, and help them to do what you have them to do. The same for us. Now, Lord, every note, every string, strum, every key, touch, Lord, we pray, every voice. 
will be yours to glorify you. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Alright, I'm going to ask everyone to stand up. <laughs> I didn't sit down. You didn't get me. <laughs> usually do, but I didn't sit down. Should have waited another couple seconds. Yeah, I should have waited. <laughs> Stand up. Come on, I know you can. Stand up. Let's go. You might be a little Song says that's why we up. praise him, you know.
come to that moment in time at which uh, we talk about how the Lord's been speaking to us. I had an interesting experience just this morning uh, as I was standing in the kitchen waiting for the toaster to pop up. If you know me, that's a stressful, that's a stressful time. I don't understand why the toaster always takes longer for me than it does for everybody else. You know what I'm saying? I don't make my, I, my toast just barely dark, not dark at all, not burn or nothing. I put it in there and it seems like it takes forever. Anyways, I'm standing there waiting for my toast to pop up, and I look over on the windowsill. You know what a ladybug is, right? They're like the only bug I like. I can't think of any other ones. They're cute. A little red bump of a thing with dots on its back or whatever. A little antenna crawls around. Like, I don't smash ladybugs. Don't tell me if you smash ladybugs. I might, I might be sad. But ladybugs are cute. There's a ladybug on the windowsill, and the toast is taking forever anyway. So I'm looking at the ladybug in the windowsill. And I'm praying and thinking, and I was praying and thinking all morning since I woke up, and so that was just a continuation, except for looking at that ladybug, and the ladybug crawled up to the corner of the windowsill, between the window and the windowsill there, and there was a spider web. And the ladybug crawled up to the spider web, and then for some unknown, very foolish reason, the ladybug stuck its leg in the spider web. Now, it was probably just going to try to crawl on past. didn't even realize the spider was there. I don't know if spider was pretty invisible ladybugs. I don't know. And I watched the ladybug stuck its leg in the spider web. Well, right after the ladybug stuck its leg in the spider web, it said, oh, that wasn't a good idea, clearly, because it, it kind of danced back on its other, what, five legs or whatever, and it was kind of doing like this number. And then this, the web was kind of springy, and so it kind of sprung forward. And then the web was stuck to the corner of the ladybug, and the leg of the ladybug, and I'm thinking, uh oh, this ladybug's in trouble. And I'm standing there watching the ladybug, and it's kind of rolling a little bit, and it, it opens its wings a little bit, trying to flutter and get strength and get away from the web. And then I'm just, I'm thinking to myself, I'm just about to reach out and you know, kind of just give it a little tap, get it away from the web, because I like ladybugs. And uh, while I'm focused on the ladybug behind me, I hear <laughs> the toast came up, but. I wasn't worried about the toast anymore, I was worried about the ladybug, right? And so as I watched the ladybug mostly wrapped up in the spider web on one side, as he fluttered back away, I assume it was a male ladybug because I think all ladybugs are male because I think that's poetic justice. But anyway, <laughs> uh, and all of a sudden the ladybug broke free from the web and it fluttered off away, and I don't know where it went, I lost track of it pretty quickly. And. Um, I thought to myself, and I prayed to God, and I said, Lord, I said, were you showing me something there? And I felt like the Lord was with me. And he said, yeah, some things you want to see there. And I said, well, I know what it is. You ever do that to God? You know, like God's going to show you something, and you're like, Lord, is this something I need to see? And then, and then God says, yes, it is. And you go, I know what it is, Lord. And I said, that ladybug was about to be trapped in that spider web, and I was ready to save her just like you're ready to save anybody that will look to you. And we're all on the edge of getting trapped in the spider web. They're already trapped in the spider web. We could die, you know, and anybody will look to you, you'll save them. And God said, nope, that's not it. And I said, well, I'm, I think I'm just going to eat my toast then. Because that's too much work to figure it out, you know what I'm saying? But because I've been praying, I was listening to the Lord and stuff, I let the toast, toast sit in the toaster. I'm standing staring at the web, spider web just kind of dangling there. And this is what the Lord said. When you go to the Bible and you read the Word and you already know what it says before you even read it, you're blind. You can't see the trap. When you go to the Word and you read it 
and you immediately know what it says, you pull back and you go, okay, I got that. I'm not saying you did it wrong. You may get it right. Led by the Holy Spirit, you definitely can understand. You go, okay, I got that. That's good. I'm going to add that to my repertoire and I'm going to use it when I need to use it. When you go to the Word and you stick your hand in it and you go, oh, oh, oh I think I know what's going on here. And you don't pull back. You get further stuck. And you still don't pull back. And you dig in and you ask questions like, who, what, why, when, where, what am I supposed to do about this? How does this apply to me? Should this change my thinking? Should this renovate my heart? When you do that, and you get really stuck up and wrapped, and when you die in the Word because it's stuck to you all over, he says, that is meditation. Okay, how about you? Did you read your Bibles this week? Did you pray? I hope so. Miss Chris got her hand up. Let's hear it. All right, so... Don't want fathers to be what God made them to be. Right. 
I also think fathers make a mistake a lot of times just stop at the first part of that verse. You know, don't frustrate, don't anger your children. And the truth is, you're going to go your own way and do what you shouldn't do, you're going to wind up in anger, frustrated. And so if kids disobey or say whatever, they, they have to deal with that because we have the ramifications for their disobedience. And, and dads need to discipline them to step up and do what they're supposed to be. That's a good word. All right, who else? Started? Um, I don't remember the day. I don't remember what day it was, but it was a few days, probably a week or so ago, within the last week or so. Um, I went outside just because I am completely fascinated by thunderstorms. Like, completely fascinated to the point to where at one point it was almost an obsession. I they just I fall in love. Hey, brother! I fall in love with thunderstorms. I love them. I think I think they're the most coolest thing. And I was standing outside on my front porch watching the storms come in. And I look across the street and all you see in the field across the street from my house, and it's a, it's a huge field. And I think it's probably upwards to a 100 acre field. And this field is huge. And all you can see in the darkness of this field is hundreds of thousands of little blinking lights from the lightning bugs. I have never in my life seen that many lightning bugs. So I brought the kids out. I was like, hey, come here, guys. And I was really excited because I thought it was really cool. And so I brought them out on the front porch with me, and they're like, oh, that's so cool. And you could just see, like I said, it for like hundreds of thousands of these things just blinking. And it got me thinking, you know, why? Like, why are they all out there? What, like, what is the purpose of a lightning bug? Like, what, what purpose does a lightning bug serve in the world? Like, I, I never understood. And something that I was thinking about, I was standing out there, I'm like, it's just beauty. It adds beauty to the world. Because that was one of the most beautiful things I've seen in a while. I mean, it was, it was so cool. Just looking out and just seeing, like I said, hundreds of thousands of these things. I mean, you could just see them all the Lincoln. And it was the coolest thing. And then, like I said, you had the storm in the background of it. I'm like, you know, sometimes we don't see the purpose in something. And I think that's what God was trying to show me is everything has a purpose. If God created it, if God let it happen, there's a purpose. There's a reason. Because, let's be honest, if God wanted something not to happen, he would prevent it from happening. So... Everything that happens in this world, whether it's good, whether it's bad, there's a purpose for it. But it's up to us to understand what that purpose is. And as crappy as it is, sometimes we might not know that until we get to heaven. So we have to keep moving forward. We have to keep pushing forward. And we have to remember, like I said, God created everything for a reason. I never understood, I still to this day have no clue what purpose a lightning bug serves. Except they're fun to catch. I mean, when you're kids, what the kid hasn't went out to go catch leading lightning bugs at night. So, like I said, it, God creates everything. He lets everything happen for a reason. But we have to be willing to keep our eyes open to see what that reason may be. Yeah, when you were asking what's the purpose of the lightning bug, the only, the only thing I could think of, I there may be some... some uh, chemical scientific reasons what they do like they do things with plants or something I don't actually understand it 
Um, but I will tell you this for sure, and that is that it's for by God. And that's what all creation does. All creation testifies to the glory of our God. And that's the bad stuff, too. You're absolutely right about that. You know, people are like, how can a tornado taking out somebody's house testify to the glory of God? Well, think about the power of a tornado. God's power is infinitely more powerful than that. And when, we, when people encounter that, they have people have like almost like PTSD or a really long-lasting psychological faction encountering that level of power. Now, multiply that by a thousand or a million or a billion or quintillion or some big number that I can't name, that's what it's going to feel like to be in the presence of God if you don't know Jesus. It's still going to feel like that a little bit even if you do know Jesus, but you're also going to be comforted because you know Jesus. So, good word, good word. All right, Jason? salvation. So there are promises where God says, if you meditate, this kind of thing will be your, your result. 
So that's our spiritual discipline for this six months. I encourage you to try that out. You know, and then um, I know the real temptation is when you're meditating to write something down. Be aware. If you're, if you're reading in the Word and thinking about it and you start writing something down, you have switched disciplines. Okay? Meditation is not writing something down. That's study. Okay? Nothing wrong with study. It's good discipline, right? So this is how, when I'm meditating, how I do it, like I, and I, uh, God's been pushing me strongly in this direction. If you discover something in meditation, you want to remember it, you know what you have to do. You have to memorize it. Right? You don't go get a pen and write it down. Oh, God said, ladybugs, uh, spider, uh, meditation. You, know, you don't go get a pen and write it down. You go over it and over it in your head until it sticks, which is more meditation because you're, the, the product of your meditation, you're, you're going over and over it in your head. Okay? So I would encourage you to do that and don't quit. Okay? All right. Uh, Brother Tony Brister, our deacon, would you please pray for us? We're praying along with him. Dear Father, Lord, thank you for uh, this day you created for us. Thank you for the opportunity to bring us. Father, uh, Lord, you know that you have something for us to do. One of those things was to come to church. Thank you for those who uh, came, for this building was invited. Lord, just ask you to be with us today. We've already heard from uh, people that have had some things that they uh, meditated on or were shown to them by you. Uh, I thank you, Lord, for the words that you shared me with me over the past few weeks. And uh, I know it's everybody. So uh, we, we may not really know the full outcome of it, but as we think on it, as we meditate on it, uh, we have to believe what you're going to show to us. So thank you for that. Yes, we're to be with us in the service, be with the cotton office we take them up, be with the pastor that he brings forth the sermon we lay on heart. Help us, Lord, as, as members uh, to soak it up, to listen, be attentive, and to set all distractions aside. Uh, to take control of this day you made for us.
humbled once more by the fact that Jason is more qualified to run the PowerPoints than I am. Praise the Lord. All righty. Getting my page here. Somewhere, there it is. So as I was preparing this message and reading this text, it occurred to me that sometimes we think we've got a handle on it when we just don't. And that is, uh, that is part of the human condition. We talk about the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. All three of those things, the lust of the, uh, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, all three of those things will lead you to want to believe that you've got it under control. Whatever area of your life you're dealing with, uh, relationships, money, doesn't matter, whatever, will lead you to want to believe that you've got it under control. Um, let me put it this way. If you have it under control, you don't have it under control. If your scope is limited, my scope is limited, we only know so much. We, we set rules. Uh, as a parent, I've done it five times now. I've got a seven-year-old, seven and I learned this. Even though we, as, as Ms. Chris was talking about, we talked about last week, dads are required to set discipline. I learned this, that discipline is different for every child. That what discipline might uh, bring a child in line normally might crush another child. Uh, or might cause them to rebel and, and strike out on their own and not want to do what it is that they're supposed to do uh, the very next day or later in life. Discipline is different for every child. So when I was dealing with Alicia, who was, and she was young and she was trying my patience, uh, we made some rules in the house. We weren't very good at it because we, we were young parents and to begin with we weren't even saved. So we messed her up pretty good by the time we got saved. And then uh, played catch-up from that time on. Um, but we made some rules that we later determined. Some of them we just figured out weren't very good rules. Some of them we figured out were not going to apply with our later kids. And some of them we figured out she could handle it because she had kind of been through the school hard knocks and dealt with some things. She could handle some freedoms that others could not. And then we found out she couldn't handle some freedoms that others could. And so it's always different. And because you just don't know, your scope is limited, your understanding is limited, if you think you've got it under control, I suggest you turn it over in the hands of the Lord because the only way to really get it under control is if God gets it under control. And then if He lets you have a little part of that, great. And if He doesn't, so be it. So that was in my mind as I looked at this passage of Scripture. We're going to read. Uh, it's a challenging passage of Scripture that comes from the book of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah was written essentially to the people as they were already uh, had been disciplined by God, chastised. Uh, he spoke everything that was in here. Probably, and this is interesting, you may uh, find interesting, probably spoke everything in here and probably spoke everything in here in rhyme because uh, public speaking was done. They would speak for as much as two hours without notes and do it in rhyme, which is ironic to me because I, I can do a sermon without any notes at all, um, but I certainly couldn't do it in rhyme. Um, because I'm just not that good, or otherwise I'd be constantly faltering and struggling. But they would do that as they did most of their public speaking. They would stand up and speak as much as an hour at a time, and everything would rhyme. Um, and it's maybe a little easier in Hebrew than it is in English, but still. Okay. Um, so these are the public works of the book of Isaiah. That is kind of broken down into three sections. 
And each section sort of has an attention to a certain detail of what God was doing and what he was talking about. And largely, the first section is dealing with the nation, uh, which really would be of, of Israel, Judah, um, what remained after the northern tribes have already been conquered and Jerusalem has been spared. That's really what we're talking about. Okay? Alright, so grab your Bibles if you would. We're going straight to the text. The sermon's not, I don't think it's super long, but we're going to give it all into the Lord's hands and let Him take care of it. Okay? So uh, go with me if you would to Isaiah chapter 1. Amen. I like it that you all join me in marking that spot. Here we are now reading from the Word of God and letting Him speak as He would. Now what He has written here, He may embellish it to you in a way that He has not to us, or He may lead you off in a meditation, and if you go with Him, He will teach you and you will grow, and that's fine. Okay, uh, that's, that's definitely what we want. So listen to the Lord more than you listen to me, but definitely listen to the Lord's word. And I hope maybe read along if you have your Bibles with you. All right, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So in other words, this just all that really matters is that marks the dates and times. We could get into what was happening in each king. We've done that some before in study. Um, but bottom line is, this is telling us exactly when he ministered, who he spoke with. He had a, a, a real access to the king's court. So he had very much royal surroundings. He was speaking to people of very high... He doesn't nec- Amoz is not necessarily a, um, a wealthy man even, but because he was a known prophet and not a false prophet, he had a real access to uh, the throne room, if you will, of Judah. And so just understand that he was witnessing to leaders uh, of the nation... And, and wealthy men who came and, and trying to turn the nation back in the right direction. Okay, then verse 2. And here, here's where it begins, really. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. Okay, so he's calling out the heavens and the earth as sort of a trial. This follows trial format, as if they're going to be judged. Somebody's going to be judged. Right? So the jury at this point of this trial is made up of the heavens and the earth. And only God can do that, really. And he says, sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. Meaning, there is a people that are my people. I have taken care of them. I have disciplined them. Reared means disciplined. I have taught them. And I brought them up. I provided for them. I protected them. I saw to it that they were safe. I, I growed them, grew them, however you say that. Right? Verse 3. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master. I'm sorry, an ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. In other words, how to go home. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So now we see that the one that's being called to count here is the nation of Israel, God's people, favored by God. And don't kid yourself, they knew they were favored by God. They would claim it all day long, every day, that they were favored by God. In the midst of their suffering, they're claiming it all the more. And we're going to see they're taking some certain steps here in the midst of their suffering as most of their nation has been carried off into captivity or conquered. And Jerusalem was rescued by an amazing event of God, really not even because of the Israelite people or anything, but because the false king, Sennacherib, made some pretty nasty insults about God. And so God said, yeah, well, I'm going to strike you and your people. I was going to use you to discipline my people, but now I'm not going to. And that's what saved Jerusalem. And pretty much everybody knows the story that God saved them. God saved them again and again and again. God saved them again and again and again. Yet here, God is calling out the heavens and the earth and even using as an example the donkey 
and the ox and how, I mean, we think of, these are got to be two of the dumbest animals on the earth as far as, I mean, farmers would even say a donkey is, is stubborn and rebellious and not very smart and, a, and an ox is the same. And if, if an ox don't want to go, you just can't make it go. I mean, you whip, they don't even whip ox really because you whip them all you want and they don't, they don't go. They go when they want to go. And they lure them and they, they train them. And hopefully from very young, you get a big old dumb stubborn ox, you can't hardly get it to do anything. And he says, but the ox and the donkey, they know. The ox knows its owner and will go when its owner wants going, basically. And the donkey knows its master's manger, knows how to go home, how to find its master again. But Israel does not know at this late date, after all that I've done, they do not know. My people do not understand. That's the accusation against Israel. Verse 4. Alas! Sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. First of all, I want you to see there's a kind of a broad cross-section of the problems in their society listed in there. They are a sinful nation, so the people as a whole are sinful. They don't do what God would want them to do, or they do what God would want them not to do. They're people weighed down with iniquity. They're stuck in the spider webs of their own sin. They're doing things, and then the things that they have done bring about stuff that makes it hard for them to live. And they're, they're struggling with that day in, day out, because of the ramifications of what they've done. They are the offspring of evildoers. So in some cases, their parents, bad. Now they've been raised to be bad. Their parents were not following God the way they were supposed to. I think this is a truth, and it's not a pleasant truth, but I think this is a truth. Whatever sin you have that you're not willing to deal with, even if you're a follower of the Lord, whatever sin you have that you're not willing to deal with, expect that to be replicated a hundred times or a thousand times in your children. If you're a parent and you're a liar, your, children will, your child will not just be a liar, they will use their lies to cover a multitude of sins and try to get away with it. They will probably, if you're a liar as a Christian, they will probably grow up lying, saying they're a Christian too, but not actually be a Christian. They're on the way to hell, and they're doing that because you were a liar, and they're multiplying your lies. So whatever your sins are, you know, teach your children, look, I am a, I'm a flawed sinner saved by grace, and that's what you need to be too. Don't cover up your mistakes. If you're a liar, admit it, I'm struggling with lying. You talk to your child, doesn't matter what, how old they are, and say, look, I'm struggling with this sin. And you be honest with them. And let them know that you're at work to deal with that. Because what this nation had become was the offspring of evildoers. There were children who were following the footsteps of their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents in doing evil. And it says, sons who act corruptly. So there were parents who were trying to get it right. I mean, they had issues probably, but they were trying to get it right. But their sons were acting corruptly. So they were also not living the way their parents. So just the same as I said, your sins will replicate themselves in your children. Understand that not all your goodness is going to replicate in your children. Not all the good things that God does through you is going to just automatically repeat. We like to see our own good traits in other people. Often. And we like to see bad traits in other people so that we can cover up our own bad traits. Most of the time, you're upset about somebody, what somebody else did that's bad. You understand that actually it's because you're not dealing with what's bad in you. If you're complaining about somebody else who literally sinned against you, you don't understand you're in sin. I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. How can I be in sin for complaining about when somebody sinned against me? They should be asking me for forgiveness. Yeah, but you're not supposed to be complaining and you're supposed to be forgiving them even if they don't ask. So you're already off, right? So you can go, well, I know God calls me to forgive, but I don't have to forgive this person because they were bad. 
At which point in time, Jesus says, after the Lord's Prayer, if you cannot forgive, you cannot be forgiven. So here, sons, good does not replicate in sons automatically, and evil replicates in sons automatically. That's the truth. And so whatever's bad about you, expect it to show up in future, future generations. And that doesn't just mean your own children either, because we all have an audience. Everyone, somebody, somebody's watching you. Your neighbors, your coworkers, people that you deal with, the people in your church, somebody is looking at you. And your sins are going to replicate in some way in that person that's watching you. And your goodness is not necessarily going to replicate in that person. Sin spreads. Righteousness does not spread. Right? The only way righteousness comes is through the gospel and through Jesus Christ. And it's God's righteousness, not even our own righteousness. So if you ain't got it, you ain't going to get it unless you get it from Jesus. And if you got it from Jesus and yet kept some corruptness in you, then the Jesus in you, that's not going to spread to the other people automatically. But the corruptness in you, that's automatically going to spread to the other people. As they see you get away with something. As they don't understand why you don't show up and do what you're supposed to do. One shortcoming that has arisen out of your sin is enough to propagate more sin in somebody else. And that's what was going on in their nation. We have this whole thing boiling up and getting out of control and it's become a sinful country. A favored people by God not doing what God would have them to do. That's what they have become. It says they have despised the Holy One of Israel. Let's not confuse that word despised. Despised means to make something out to be small. That's what they had done. They had made God out to be small. And that's what we do. When being a favored people, we don't do what we're supposed to do. And it says they had turned away from him. We're walking through the parking lot with one of my sons, I think it was Arden, I'm not positive, and there were cars everywhere. And the rule was, until you're a certain age, always has been, until you're a certain age, you have to hold my hand. Walking in the parking lot, walking across the street, whatever. Even my boys, that was always our rule when they were little. When they got old enough, tall enough, alert enough, then they could just walk with me and stay close, had to stay within arm's reach. And then when they're still, older still, and they're tall enough, and they can be seen, then they can walk by themselves. And that was the way. But I'm walking through the parking lot with my four-year-old son, and he decides he wants to pick something up off the ground and yanks his hand out of my hand to pick something off the ground. Well, just then, a car's coming by. For all I know, he's running away, right? He physically, forcefully yanks my hand out of his hand, and for all I know, he's running away. And I snatched him up by the back of the net, and he cried for 15 minutes afterwards saying I heard him. And I probably did. That's what he's talking about when he said they have turned away from him. They were yanking their hand. This imagery is they were yanking their hand out of the hand of the God of the universe. The God that had protected them, brought them into their land, had showed that they were the favored people, had set before them a heaven for eternity. And they weren't sticking with him. They yanked themselves away. And so you can imagine what his response is going to be, and he's about to talk about that. He says, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. In other words, you ever, you ever, if you're a parent, you might get this. If you were a child, and you were, so you might have gotten this when you were younger. There's a moment of time where a parent looks at a child and they go, I'm not sure exactly how severe a punishment I can enact here that's going to potentially turn this in the right way. You know, there's only so much I can do. I whip him and he doesn't even cry. You know, or I, I took away, I, he was playing on the phone and he got in trouble, didn't look at something he should I took it away for a day, then for a week, then for a month. Now what do I do? Well, take it away permanently. You just don't have a phone, okay? 
Then the kid goes and behave, misbehaves in some other way. Now what do you do? We ground them. They're grounded. They misbehave. What do you do? You spank them. Right? What do they do? You spank them again. What do you go, to, go to the shed and get a wooden baseball bat and beat them until their bones are broke? I mean, to what point? When do you stop? You have to stop. There has to be a stop. You cannot do it in anger, obviously, and we don't discipline like that. But to that extent, what I'm saying is there is a moment of time in which you go, what is it going to take? And I submit to you at the moment of time at which you would say, what is it going to take as a parent or as a child? You feel like you're just pushing past and you're just good enough now that you can get around, sneak around behind their backs or whatever, or overcome the discipline that you're getting. At that moment in time, there is a break in relationship between the child and the parent that is not going to be mended. The heart is gone. It's like a man or a woman in a married relationship and she comes up to him and she says, you know, I'm going to get a divorce. I just need to get a divorce. I don't love you anymore. I'm not sure I ever did. I'm going to get a divorce. The Bible says that happens because of the hardness of the heart of the individual. And God is now, remember, this is them on trial. God is saying before the heavens and the earth, before, kind of before, or using the donkey and the ox, He's saying to all those who would listen, what's left? How can I strike you? How can I get your attention? As my nation, as my people, as my favorite people, what can I do more to get your attention? Your whole head is sick. There's nothing left in there for me to provoke, to get you to think the right way. Your whole heart is faint. If I hit you now, you just die. You just fall down and cry, scream like a baby, whatever. There's nothing, there's no boldness and courage and strength in you to do what's right anymore. That's what he's saying. Verse 6, From the sole of the feet, even so, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. It was nothing good left in them, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not, nor softened with oil. In other words, they had been disciplined so severely, they had been struck so completely, they, they were ready to just fall down and die and, and, and get infected, and they had nothing. Verse 7, it says, Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left with a shelter and a vineyard. In other words, instead of living in beautiful palaces, castles, things that God had prepared for them, instead of their situation being good, they're like a little shed out in the middle of the field. Not, not even shelter from winter. Nowhere to put the grain to... to Go for next year, etc. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Verse 9. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Can you imagine that when Isaiah said that, every Jewish man who knew the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah was crushed in his spirit. He was ripped in his heart as he realized that the nation of God, the favored people of God, the people that God could have made the light unto the world, unto all the nations, that people had become like Sodom and Gomorrah. But by God's mercy, he left them a remnant, it says. We would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah completely if he had not left us a few survivors. Then 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So in other words, first he said we would have been like that, and now he says you are them. 
you have become Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, let's be, be clear. What have they done? They've become a people corrupt. They've become a people not following God. They're pulling their hands out of the hand of the Lord and doing it their own way. They're wicked, essentially, from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet. One of their greatest maladies is that they are suffering under the effects of their sin. Then he says, in 11, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord. Now this is an interesting turn, isn't it? See, we're about to find out what the worst thing they did was. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? So as you've increased sacrifices, sacrificing more than you need to, doubled, tripled, quadrupled, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offering of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I, I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? In other words, this useless trotting. So they were going into the temple more often than ever and more people than ever. And they were praying and they were begging God to intercede. Their greatest sin has become that they are sacrificing more to God. That they are worshiping God more. That they are praying to God more. That's crazy. And this is what we do. People are in the difficult times of their life. I'll never forget. It was a defining moment. Spirit spoke in me. Met a, we went and met a young man who was in the psych ward. And, and uh, he'd been knifed on Thanksgiving. And, and uh, went to the hospital. And then they did a psyche eval on him. And they wanted to put him in the psych ward. And we met him in there. And a lady went with me. And she said while I was there, she said, you know, all these problems just go away if you just read your Bible more. And this is what we do. Seriously, somebody comes to you and they say, hey, uh, you know, so my aunt's dying of cancer or I'm going through a really rough time in my relationship or whatever. What do you say? You say, well, I'll pray for you. Or you say, pray and ask God and, you know, trust the Lord. All things work together for the glory, for the good of those who are called according to His purpose and love God. If you just do that, it'll work out to your good. I know it sucks right now, but it'll work out. Trust God more. Right? There's nothing wrong with trusting God more. There's nothing wrong with reading your Bible, whatever. But by the time you get there to the place of a, tr- of a crushed spirit and whatever, those sacrifices become trite. The man who has not prayed for his wife but is on the verge of divorce, it's too late. You pray now? You beg God now? Should you pray? Absolutely. But should you pray and pray and pray and pray hard more and whatever and beat the door of heaven down with your prayer voice because you want God to do something for you now that you didn't do what you were supposed to do for all that time? Can you imagine? Here we are living in the most prosperous country pretty much on the face of the earth with a few minor exceptions, but the prosperity in those countries are generally only uh, for, for the select and the elite. So we're living in one of the most prosperous countries on the face of the earth and a lot of people don't come to worship. I'm going to be careful now. Because a lot of us, and a lot doesn't mean all or over half, but a lot of us come and we don't sing the worship songs. We don't read the Word. We go from Sunday to Sunday and don't open our Bibles. And I don't know what percentage it is, and I'm not asking. Please don't tell me. I don't want to know. We talk about the spiritual disciplines that we practice and we're not. So here's what's going to happen. Let me just show you how this is going to go down eventually, at some point in time, there's going to be great persecution break out against the church. That's what's going to happen. Before, Probably before Jesus comes again, there's going to be great persecution break out against the church. 
And the Sunday after that starts, I'm going to come into this room and I'm going to praise the Lord if it's at all possible. And if not, I'll do it on the lawn. And if I can't do it on the lawn, I'll do it in my side yard or my living room or your living room or wherever we decide to get together that Sunday. If we can't do it here, but we will get together, some of us, and we will praise the Lord. And I can't praise the Lord with more song than I praise Him now unless we put more songs into worship. That'd be the only way. And you know what's probably going to happen when the real persecution breaks out against the church? The people that don't believe in the Lord, they're just not going to come. But there's going to be people who believe in the Lord and they're going to come. And they're going to start singing for the first time ever. Or sing louder than ever. Or twice as much as ever. Because now I desperately need God to help me because I'm under persecution. Somebody may shoot me or my family before next Sunday. So I need to praise God. Listen, you need to praise God before that time comes. And this is the problem. God is saying, your sins, your multiplied sacrifices, your praises, etc., have become the greatest sin amongst you. He said, not from the bottom of your feet to the top of your head is one ounce of goodness. And then they're going in and they're giving sacrifices more than they've ever given before. They're giving praises to God more than they've ever given before. There was only one true sacrifice that God was looking for, and they weren't giving that one. They were giving everything else. More money than they'd ever given before. More animals. More praise time. They were never missing going to temple because they were in a persecution. If God didn't let them survive, they would die as a nation. And so they were entreating God. And God says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? He said, listen, he says, bring your worthless offerings no more. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. In other words, if you're going to sin on Thursday, and then you go come in here on Sunday and act like nothing ever happened, you're full of the kind of crap God, God don't want nothing to do with. 14. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. So their great sin includes them, wait for it, praying more. They prayed more to God, and God says, knock that off. Not only will I not hear you, I'm sick of it. Ouch. Almost done with the text. He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. In other words, stop the people that are hurting the other people. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. 
And here it comes. Wait for it. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Notice God says, once again, or really maybe for the first time ever, I will wash away your sins so that the blood stain that is on you becomes pure and clean. And he asked for one thing before he said he would do that. He says, come now, let us reason together. This is part of the problem that the church, the world over, has stopped stopping and reasoning with God. This is one of the things that I do love about our church. Being New Heights Fellowship, it's not about spending time with me. I mean, we do spend time together and that's great. And God lifts us up as we all use our gifts and work for Him and so on. Being New Heights Fellowship is about reaching new heights in Jesus, our Lord, in Christ, the one whom God sent to be our master and the master of all creation. That's what it's about to be this church. If you're waiting for me to tell you what to do, you can sit there every Sunday. And some of you have sat there, in some cases for 10 years, and ask yourself, have I ever told you what to do? I hope not. This is God's Word. It has everything in it that we need to know what to do. The Holy Spirit, I hope, is in you. He will tell you what to do. We learn from His Word how to go to Him and reason with Him. How to get wisdom from Him. Following Jesus is about hearing the voice of God and doing what you're told. That's what it means to have a Lord. He tells you what to do, and you do it. I use that all the time when I'm witnessing. So would you say He's your Lord? Yes, I would. That means He tells you what to do, and you do it. And most often, more often I say that, that gives them pause because they have to stop and think about it. And then when we get to the part where they go, well, I don't even go to church, really. I'm going like, but you said Jesus was your Lord. And he tells you what to do and you do it. And they're like, well, yeah, but he's never told me to go to church. I said, well, the entire New Testament, 70% of it, was written to the collected body of the church. So all those commands are to people in church. There are verses in there that tell you you've got to go and worship collectively. And the word church means called out assembly of God. So you're called out and assembled. But if you say so, then let's deal with the other issues. The bottom line is, he's Lord. He tells us what to do and we do it. He says, come and reason with me. Let us reason together, says the Lord. And then he says he'll wash their sins. Then he says he'll cleanse them. But there's an if, beginning in verse 19. He'll do that if you consent and obey. To, to consent to something is to allow it to be so. I agree. I'm willing. And to obey is to do what you're told. If you consent and obey. So if you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. See, he's saying, I'm not going to destroy you anymore. I'm not going to wash out like Sodom and Gomorrah. I will lift you up again. I will provide for you again. I will protect you again. I will give you purpose again. I will do all of these things. If you consent and obey, you will eat and the best of the land. But if you refuse, to refuse is to say, oh, no, no, thank you. None for me. If you refuse and rebel, to rebel is to go against what you know you're supposed to do, whether it's in honoring or in obeying. So if you know what God would want from you, you don't do it. 
That's sin. That's James 4.17. I know the good I should do and don't do it. That's sin. Right? So you know what you're supposed to do and don't do it. That's rebelling. And rebellion, like Samuel said, is the sin of witchcraft. When you rebel against your leader, against your dad, against your God, if you refuse and rebel, it's addictive. He says, but if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. And then he ends it this way, which is by no means the end of the book, but it is the end, essentially, of this part of this prophecy. He says, truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So a few things I want you to see in here that jumped out at me, and it, it went in a different direction, sort of, than I expected as I was looking at it. And I was okay, I'm okay with that because it's God's direction, I think. First thing I want you to see is that we are to observe, as all heaven and earth are to observe, we are to observe that the favored people of God, it happens, sometimes misbehave. The favored people of God, people whom God has called His own people, sometimes misbehave. It happens that generations arise who do not remember the great works of the Lord. Just like, in, remember when they were cast into Egypt and eventually a Pharaoh arose who did not remember the great works of Joseph and that's how the Israelites wound up in slavery. And it happens that a generation will arise that do not remember the great works of the Lord. You can remember you getting saved. At least I hope you can. If you've not been saved, I submit to you, you need to seriously consider God entreating you to be saved. So you can remember that too. But a generation will arise that does not remember. So my kids, I've pushed pretty hard with my kids, to, for them to know that I got saved. I, you have heard my story. They have heard my story probably twice as often as you've heard my story about how I got saved, what God has done, what God has done in our life, and so on like that. So we witness to what we have seen and heard so that others will know that our fellowship is with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. First John 1 John 1.3. That's who we are. It's what we do. You should make sure that your children can recount your story. Right? If you've been through a hardship, a trial, and God brought you out of it. If you, the moment you got saved, the time that you had a certain thing where God was really speaking to you, whatever, those stories should be conveyed to your children. But even if they are conveyed to your children, you can imagine that they're not going to be conveyed nearly as well to your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. So a generation will arise, hopefully not your children, but it could happen. A generation will arise where you have failed to make sure they know Enough to praise God for what He did for you. But it's worse than that. You could tell them the stories over and over and over again, and they could still not get it. Because they too must reason with the Lord. You're not saved because your dad saved. You're not saved because your grandpa saved. You have to reason with the Lord. They have to reason with the Lord. And whether it's your children or your great-grandchildren, a generation will arise at some point who do not know the mighty works of God. After the great awakening, which took place in uh, kind of like the New England states and down the Erie Canal, so coming this way into Ohio, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands even, getting saved. There were so many people got saved that they say there were places where like uh, businesses that sold alcohol, things like that, literally went out of business. Barkeeps said, oh, I can't do this anymore, and they closed up. Um, mules that had been trained to respond to cuss words, nobody could make them work any anymore because no one would cuss to get the mules to go. They couldn't figure it out. So they, they would have to say words that sound a lot like it and see if they could get the mules to go. So the, after the Great Awakening, there were tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people got saved throughout the United States, here up northeastward into like the New England states, up, up and down the Erie Canal. And then 
the next generation was deeply affected, and then the next generation was way less deeply affected, and now we're so far from that that there's nobody. I, don't, I doubt you can find anybody anywhere who would say, well, my great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy got saved during the Great Awakening. A generation is going to arise. Now, this is something we can work to prevent, right? And the gospel is new and fresh to every generation. So if you, if you literally lead your kids to understand these things, then as they understand them, accept them, God will do something mighty in them, then they will tell their children their mighty story, first person, with how powerful it was to them, details, described, whatever, what it was like to be there. And you have a better shot of the, their children then picking it up. And this doesn't only apply to father and son. It applies to anybody that the gospel is shared with. If you're sharing the gospel with somebody like this, you know, I, I was going to college and I, I realized I didn't have something. And so I went to church and the pastor said, if I went forward and prayed a prayer, that I could go to heaven when I die. And I realized that's what I was missing. And so I did that and now I'm saved. You want to be saved? If that's how you're sharing the gospel, or better yet, if you're sharing it like this, which appears to be how most people are sharing it, then this generation, the one right around us that's living in the world right now, is going to be the generation that arises, that forgets where we came from and the amazing thing that God's have done. How many people in this church know that God essentially amazingly gave us this building? It would cost us $42. I also cost a bunch of help and a bunch of money from mission teams and things like that to get the building ready. But this building that you're sitting in right now, which is appraised at $2.2 million, cost us 42 bucks. Because we had to transfer the title. That's it. God did that. And it was a long, convoluted process, and I love to walk you through it. If you don't know it, you should know it, and somebody should be able to say it. Or how many people realize that when we had a $26,000 estimate to get the electricity turned on in this building, God said, I'm going to take care of that, even though we only had four or $5,000 in the bank, and we were ready to break the deal. He said, I'm going to take care of that. And he sent a man who, uh, he, he sent, um, a man who ran an electric company called Christ Electric, spelled C-H-R-I-S-T, to come and get donated materials and donate his labor and everything like that. But it was still going to be quite a bit of money, like close to, I think the lowest he could get it down to was going to be like 3500 bucks. And we're all like, well, it needs to be done. We've got no electricity. That's going to have to be done before we can move into the building. And, and so we were, were going to go ahead and do it. And then when he came out here, he went in the electric box and this, this wire that's like this big around that goes down the box and all the way out to the street, 125 feet or something it is. It first goes out to the side yard, then turns and goes out to the street. He said, well, I'm quite certain it's been in there for so long that we're going to need a machine. They got this special machine connected to the wire and it pulls it up a foot and then you disconnect and go down, pulls it up in their foot away and the machine kind of does that. It grabs it and grabs it and grabs it and pulls it up. He said, we need that machine. And then on the Saturday we're supposed to do it, he said, I don't, I don't know if we're going to get the machine or not. We may have to back off a week and we we're going to, he had to pay $1,200 or something to rent the machine or something because uh, he couldn't get it donated. And he walked over to the box and said, I just want to see how tight the cables are in the box. And he grabbed the cable and he pulled it out like three feet. And he was like, well, that was really weird. There must have been a bunch of slack in there. So he tucked it under his arm, 125-foot cable down into the ground through the side yard and out to the street and been cut at the street. And he pulled on it. He started walking it out the side yard just like this. One man, no real effort. And he's like, I don't know how that's even possible. Even in conduit. Even if it was laying there in conduit, the wires start to kind of blend together because they're covered with that rubber stuff. He's like, and he's like, there's no way that should be possible. Even in conduit, 125 foot, you should have to have two or three people. And he pulled the cable out and just walked it right out onto the ground. 
God provides at every step of the way. We need to tell the stories, not just the stories of what God to provide this building, but when you got saved, etc. A generation will arise that does not know the amazing works that God has done in your life. And if you have not told those tales, when that generation arises, who do you think is culpable? Who do you think deserves to be punished? Is it the generation that arises that doesn't know that you said God first or that doesn't know that God showed up in His Holy Spirit and power and that's when it happened or doesn't know that you asked God to miraculously heal and God did or whatever? Is it them? Are they the ones that are at fault? Well, yes, they are because they are the ones that are required to reason with God. They're going to be held culpable, but they're not going to be held culpable for that. That's us. We're going to be the ones held culpable for not sharing the stories, for not giving the details, for not being bold, for not speaking out, for not stepping up. Some of us like to think that when we really care about something, we make sure it gets heard. I ask you, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you making sure the thing you really care about gets heard? If that's not the thing you really cared about, my friend, you are on your way to hell. You better decide that that's the thing you really care about and make sure it gets heard. Because a generation will arise that does not know the truth of what God did in you. And when they arise, you will be the one who is held culpable for not sharing what God did in you. You say, but I don't talk much. Who cares? Get it done. Don't talk much while sharing the gospel. Use the ABCs of salvation. A, admit. B, believe. C, commit. Do that. Be saved. Get it out as fast as you have to. And say, look, I, I don't talk much. I'm not a good talker. But I can see that you don't know something that I know. And just the same as I could tell you where to find that part for your car, or where to find the money to get the job done, or where you might find a job, or whatever, same as I would share that with you, or, or whatever, I have got to share with you the thing that you need to know for abundant and eternal life. So I'm going to try. Please be patient with me. I'm not a speaker. I'm going to try to do it. You can say that. And if you can't say that, then the gospel is not the most important thing to you. And you're going to be held culpable just like anybody else when you have not shared and when that generation arises. It's worse than that. It's worse than that because a generation is arising which will be corrupted because of our bad behavior. And so we have to be honest and transparent, innocent and open. We have to live in the light and go, look, I'm trying. I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a screw-up and I know it. But please hear me anyway. Take what's good. Expel what's bad. You pick, you choose. But listen to what God would have you to hear. Because I am messed up. But I'm not as messed up as I once was because Jesus has been working on me and He'll do the same for you. And your kids need to know, they need to understand. And by the way, every generation is much better at sensing the hypocrisy of the generation before them. So my kids know when I'm being hypocritical. The young people in our church... We talk about things like how we young people, we say things like young people don't know how to show respect. Right? And now we're the grown-ups saying young people don't know how to respect, just like the grown-ups said that about us when we were kids and growing up. It's always, always been that way. But at the same time, the young kids that we're saying you don't know how to show respect and we're complaining about them, bad-mouthing them or whatever, they're recognizing 
the hypocrisy in what we're saying. Because when we were kids, we did the same things. Yes, that makes it hypocrisy. And worse, while they're not showing respect to us and to God's house and whatever, we don't show respect to God the way he deserves. It's hypocrisy. And the next generation will get it. And because of that, the next generation can be corrupted. And it has to be our job to live transparently in the light, following the Lord, the best of our abilities, and say, we're not going to cause that at least. We're not going to contribute to that at least. So stop your belly aching, stop your complaining, stop your being a jerk, and sit down with the young people of the next generation and tell them what God has done for you. And teach. And you say, but I teach and they don't listen. Yeah, how do you think God feels? Maybe your heart will actually become a little bit more like God's heart when you realize and care enough about other people to know that they need to hear what it is that you have to share that you got from God. And God feels the same way about us, that we don't listen, we don't respect Him the way He deserves. Notice that we're to observe those two things. Number one, that the generations, a generation will arise who don't respect what the Lord has done. Secondly, that children are going to be corrupted and the best defense is to live in the light and be real and, and follow the Lord obviously and be a good example of that and teach the lessons that need to be taught and so on and then third, cares and riches take priority for a lot of people and that could very well be us in the parable of the four soils which we won't go there and read it, Jesus talks about a soil that's full of thorny stuff and then later he explains that that's the cares and the riches of the world choking out the growth and the fruit which then brings discipline. And if the cares and the riches of this world are choking out the fruit in your life, you can pretty well guarantee it's going to be that way plus 100 in your child's life or in the person that you lead to Christ. I can't tell you how many people I've seen that are evangelists that come to a new town, nobody knows them, they'll share the gospel, somebody gets saved. Maybe give them a little track about how to follow Jesus. Then they go back to their town, nobody follows, so they go follow what? Well, my grandpa's model of God following Jesus or my uncle or the church near me or wherever. And some of those people wind up in churches that aren't even churches. They got saved in a restaurant because some evangelism led them to the Lord and then they wind up in a church that's ungodly and they become at best an ungodly Christian. The cares and the riches of this world take priority over God. You got a problem. This last week, did you spend more money on ministry or more money on what you like? Whatever, all the things that you like. Your house... Stuff on your walls, stuff in your cupboards, stuff in your car, your car, whatever. Did you spend more money on God's stuff or more money on that stuff? And if that stuff is also God's stuff, then you can honestly say, well, yeah, I spent more money on God's stuff. But if it isn't honestly God's stuff, if you've been buying stuff and it isn't God's stuff, then you need to understand that you are in danger of the cares and the riches choking out growth in you. And if it happens in you, it will happen in the next generation a hundredfold. This is what all that had happened to them. Some of them came through the Jordan River when it was parted. Not these people, but their generations passed. But now these people were not following God because they had forgotten that God had parted the Jordan River. These people had forgotten the meteor swarm that God sent down on the armies to destroy them when God's people were come invading the land. And it's our job to make sure that the cares and the riches do not become a priority for us. It's our job to make sure that our children are not corrupted and it's our job to make sure that we are not responsible for the generation that arises that does not respect what God has done, that does not realize what God has done. So in this text, we're being called to observe it, so observe it. Second thing, 
God's mercy leaves a remnant. And if a remnant, then a remaining hope. Notice that while they did all that, and their greatest sin had become praying more, singing more, worshiping more, sacrificing more, coming to the temple more, that was the greatest sin. While they did all that, God left them a remnant. They had not been completely wiped out. And because God's mercy left them a remnant, there was a remaining hope. I went to the hospital to visit a, a man who was dying. What had happened was he uh, it was New Year's Eve and he um, drank a lot. And he was on painkillers, oxycodone. So he took oxycodone, a little bit more than he should have, like two pills instead of one or whatever, and, which is a terribly addictive substance. And if you can never take it in your entire life, don't ever take it. If that's an option, don't do it. But he, he took the oxycodone, and then he drank a bunch of alcohol. And when he did that, he began to throw up his intestines. It's pretty nasty. We rushed him to the emergency room. He's on the floor. He's comatose for several days. And he came back to life. Now, he, he knew God or he professed to, he professed to be a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I walked through, I had no idea what I was going to say. I'm standing there, and he says, uh, my body's trashed. I did this, and he explained the whole story to me, and I said, in the spirit, let of the spirit, I said, well, you're still here. And he said, no, no, I understand that. And I said, no, I'm saying, you're still here. God has left you something. Whatever's left of your body, whatever's left of your life, God has left you something. I said, so now, you need to live the rest of your life in a way that honors him and, whatever, and make something out of whatever he left you. And we went on to talk and he committed to me that he wouldn't do drugs anymore and he wouldn't, which was only supposedly because he had hurt himself on the job or whatever, and then he wouldn't drink. Uh, he was done drinking, period. So I don't get anything out of it anyways. I'm done drinking. I'm done stretching my hours and staying up till 3 o'clock in the morning and not being able to get up for work. I'm done doing this. I'm done doing that. And he started telling me all these things he was never going to do again. Got out of the hospital, came to church one Sunday, two weeks later, couldn't come to church because he was hungover. God's mercy leaves a remnant, and if there is a remnant, there is a remaining hope. If you're still here, it doesn't matter how bad it's been, if you're still here, God has a great and powerful plan that he can enact for your future. It's amazing. It's better than you can imagine. If you're still here, he can do something amazing. And that's what position they were in. But while you're thinking about what God will teach you and use you amazingly to do, look at the third point. Things God will never tell you to do. Things God will never tell you to do. Number one, God will never tell you to do whatever you think is right. You hear me? God will never tell you to do whatever you think is right. So if you're praying about wisdom, about whether to take a job or not, God will never say, do whatever you think is right. God will never say to you, get out of bed in the morning and do what you think is right all day long and you'll be okay. All the times that God's people have always done whatever they thought was right, look at the book of Judges. All the time you do whatever you think is right always spirals down into sin and you become just like this. Don't do what you think is right. Do what God says is right. You are not a free man in that sense. If you do exactly what you think is right and God has not informed your thinking in that area, you will do what's wrong. God will never say to you, just do whatever you think is right, which is what the world is saying every day, all day. Also, God will never say to you to work works of repentance without repentance. People were coming down to the river and John the Baptist was baptizing them and they said, 
Some of them were soldiers, some of them were tax collectors and whatever. And he said, okay, now we've been baptized, following the Lord Jesus Christ, now what do we do? And John said, now go and work works of repentance. They were professing the name of the Lord. So there's work that you're supposed to do. There's work set aside for you to do. But God will never call you to do the works of repentance without the repentance. And this is what people do. They say, well, my life's not quite going right now, so... I'm going to worship more, praise God more, pray more, more time in the Word. I'm going to repent back to God, and I'm going to do more time in the Word like I said I would. And sometimes they do it, and it goes okay for a while, and then they back off. And I'm so sick and tired of people making promises that they don't keep to the Lord, and it happens and it, it, because some, some people think pastors represent God more than Christians do, which is wrong, right? Pastors represent God at best the same level as any Christian. Then they want to tell the pastors, I'm going to tell you, pastor, this is what I'm going to do from now on. And they think they're telling God. And then they don't keep that promise. And I'm tired of hearing those promises. And God is even more tired than I am because He hears them when they're still in your heart. And God says, no. God will never tell you to work the works of repentance without repentance. Turn back to God. Reason with God. Say, okay, God, here I am. What do you want me to do? Then when God tells you what that is, as long as it lines up with Scripture, you do it. It's like that. But there's a lot of people, and that's what they were doing. They were given given more and more animals, more and more praise. No. God will never tell you to do that. Also, God will never tell you to work the spiritual disciplines without the Holy Spirit. If you read your Bible more without the Holy Spirit's help, you're only going to screw up your life. Should you read your Bible more? Absolutely. But if the Holy Spirit of God does not help you to understand what it says until when you figure out what you're supposed to do, you're only going to screw up your life. You're going to follow a recipe that doesn't make any sense. You're going to do things you shouldn't do. You're going to read the parables and get different messages. You're going to read the directions and think of them as rules. And they're not. They're vestiges of God's love. They're examples of how to live a redeemed life. If you pray more and you just pray to be praying, you pray knocking down the door of heaven with your prayer voice, but you do it without the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. The Holy Spirit, you've pressed it down, distant from you. You won't know what to pray for. And when you won't know what to pray for, if you've pressed the Holy Spirit down and He's not in the mix, what will you pray? Well, you pray for stupid stuff. You pray for a, a better car, a bigger house, a better job. Stupid stuff that's all temporal and going to die, going to be gone. Like a child who thinks, well, it's Christmas, I get to pray. And I get gifts. Instead of praying, God help me, your will be done, kingdom come. God never calls us to practice the spiritual disciplines without His Holy Spirit. They redoubled all their efforts, and they did it all in the wrong direction. Okay, so there's three things I wanted you to see, and they broke down a little bit, and now we're at the conclusion. The first one was, we are to observe that there is a generation that will arise who do not respect or remember the things of God. And if we are not actively sharing with the generations that arise everything we know about God, then we will be culpable for their ignorance. They will be culpable for their sin and go to hell because of their sin, not because of us. But we will be culpable for their ignorance because we have not done our job. There's a generation of children that will arise corrupted, and we will be culpable for their corruption Less, unless we are transparent, living in the light, and showing them who God really is. There is a generation that will arise stuck in, wrapped up in cares and riches, and that could even be us if we let them take priority. Cares and riches. 
God's mercy will leave a remnant after he's done chastising and disciplining. And if a remnant, then a remaining hope. And this God will never tell you to do. He'll never say, do whatever you think is right. He'll never say, do works of repentance without actual repentance. And he'll never say, practice the spiritual disciplines more without the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to our conclusion. It is a very simple formula. It's an if-then statement, which back in basic meant if this, then this. If not this, then nothing. In this case, it's if this, then this, and if this, then this. He said, this is how you do it. Consent, that means be willing, and obey. Consent and be willing, and God will reinstate the blessings of the kingdom of God. Consent and be willing, and God will give you the power, the provision, the protection, and the purpose that He offers that he has given to everybody who has ever believed in him, everybody who has ever favored him over everyone and everything else, God will do it. But when you screw up, consenting means taking your licks like a man or like an adult in the case of a woman. When you screw up and you realize, hey, this is not going the way it's supposed to, you repent. You say, okay, God, I realize this. You don't just read your Bible more, pray more like that. You say, okay, God, I realize I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. In some way, I'm coming back to you. I'm turning to you, God, turning away from my sin, and I'm turning to you. And in doing so, you're consenting to whatever discipline, whatever punishment he sees as necessary. I have my grandkids over to the house. My grandkids over to the house, and one of them got in trouble. And I'm about to bring the hammer down. By my great blessing and the, and the genteel love of uh, Ricky, Amalia, Alicia, and RJ, I'm able to discipline my grandchildren like, essentially like they're my own children. And, and that's a great blessing that they give me. So I went to go discipline this child that was acting up, and I wound up chasing them through the house, wailing like a monster. No, 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 no! Because they didn't want to be disciplined for what they had done. That's not consent. You're being disciplined by God for what you've done. And you're like, man, I like this day. It's not going right. Ah, man, everything is messed up today. And you're complaining, groaning, mumbling, because your day is not right. That's not what consenting and obeying means. Your day don't go the way you want it to go. God's allowing it. Consenting means, okay, Lord, whatever you say, through the midst of this, I'm going to keep doing what I'm supposed to do. That's what consenting means. Consenting and obeying means you keep doing what you're supposed to be doing when things aren't going the way you expect. And when you discover that you are not currently doing what you're supposed to be doing, you repent, turn to God, and He takes over. But it's consenting. He doesn't erase the punishment. The punishment remains. The discipline that will help you remember not to do the wrong thing again next time. The training continues and you're consenting. Okay, God, I just screwed up. Not like, okay, God, I just screwed up. Zap me with a lightning bolt or throw the mountains on me. But okay, God, I just screwed up. I'm turning back to you. I won't do it again. I consent and I will obey. You are my dad. You are my father, Lord. That's what it means to consent and obey. The alternative is to refuse and rebel. And frankly, none of us like discipline. For the moment, all discipline not, seems not to be pleasant, but painful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the pleasant fruit of righteousness. Not my words, but the author of Hebrews chapter 12. 
But you say, you know, sometimes my days are rough and I start complaining or groaning or whatever, but I don't deserve rough days. Okay, now I want you to hear me now very plainly. Rough days, you deserve hell for an eternity. That's not rough days, that's eons. I deserve hell. Rough days, a car broke down, stubbed my toe, hurt myself, schedule conflict, children's misbehaving, mower won't run, windows left open, rain in my seat, butt's wet, food's cold, drop my plate, power's out, computer's fried, program won't load. Just keep going. Take any one of those and multiply it, multiply it by infinity. That's what we deserve. So when your day gets rough and you're in the midst of discipline, discipline begins with the church, baby. You know God. You have accepted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, if you have. And in knowing God, you, des- you know you deserve a heck of a lot worse than you ever get. So stop your moaning and complaining and start living in the light and, and realize you deserve a lot worse than you got yesterday when the day really sucked and everything went wrong. You deserve a lot worse than that. And by God's mercy and grace, He left you with a remnant. Another day, here we are. And it's another day in which we can do what He has given us to do. And He can show up amazingly, powerfully, and change the world. If we will just remember, if we will just respect what He's done. How many car breakdowns? How many stuck in traffics? How many stubbed toes would you endure to be allowed to be saved? For your soul to be saved so you can go to heaven instead of hell, how much bad stuff would you go through? Well, the apostles were barked at the stake, crucified, beheaded, because they knew that just beyond that was heaven for eternity. But they were whipped. Paul was whipped more whippings than a person was allowed to endure because they would usually die multiple times. And one time, he was whipped so many more times, they literally checked him. They said, yep, his pulse is gone. And they left him for dead lying outside the city. And after they all left him for dead, he got up and walked back into the city and, wait for it, began telling people about Jesus. Do we deserve what we're going through on the worst of our days? Heck yeah! We deserve worse than what we're going through on the worst of days because it happens that sometimes the favored people of God misbehave. And when they do, the solution is not, let me pray a little more, let me do a little more spiritual disciplines, I'm walking away from God, I'm yanking my hand, I'm taking control. It's not that. It is repenting and turning unto the Lord and letting God be in charge. You consent. Okay, God, whatever you want. You obey. Okay, God, you said do this. I'm going to go do that. And when you fail again, that's the remedy again. Consent and obey. And when you fail again, if you do, you consent and obey. And if you fail again, you consent and obey. And when you stop consenting and obeying and start thinking you can do it by giving more money or going to church better or dressing better or talking better or getting some other thing under control in your life, you're going to need to start to realize you don't have it under control. You have it under control when you consent and obey. That's when. And not until then. And the only reason then is because your hand will then be in the hand of the one who actually has it under control. As he will submit all of the universe because he is Lord. Think about your life. You've misbehaved. 
by God's mercy, has left you a remnant. You're still here, still able to do and be so many amazing things. You can literally pull people out of the eternal fires of hell. God has made you better than Superman. Better than the Hulk. Better than all the X-Men combined because not one of them could pull somebody out of the fires of hell. But you can go in there and if that person will simply consent and obey, you can literally pull them out of the fires of hell. You are the greater hero. But you've got to live in the light. You've got to own your weaknesses not to keep them, but to give them to God. You've got to tell your stories and share the gospel because a generation will come that does not know what God has done. I can't explain how alone I was. I can't explain how saved I was. I can't explain how it'll, I'll never go back to being who I was before I got saved. I can't explain that. But I can explain that it happened, especially to somebody who needs it to happen to them. Help us, Lord. Because your favorite people don't want to bring worthless offerings. Don't want to be a burden to you. But I want to be great joy. Let us be God's great joy as we consent and obey and become His outstretching, arm, outstretching arms as we try to get people not to forget, as we try to invite people. You are also God's secretary. Go to everybody that you possibly can and say, when you're ready, the Lord would like to reason with you. And I can guide you through that conversation if you don't know how to do it. But when you're ready, God would like an appointment with you to reason with you. And when you reason and consent and obey, He'll save you for today and forever. If you're here today and you have not reasoned with God, you have not given God your consent to be in charge of your life, He's going to be in charge anyway, but it's about whether you'll consent. Have you consented to God to be in charge of your life? If you haven't done that, do it right now. Don't wait. Not during a song or at the end of the service or later after you think about it, you say, okay, God, I consent and obey. Maybe you did that, but then since then you realize you could be held culpable for not sharing the truth, not making sure that people know about what God did in you. You could be held culpable. You could be found guilty. And it could be that God is in heaven going, my praises are not being a blessing to God because... I have not been doing the things that God would have me do. I have not been the person that God made me even. And if that's you, then you repent and consent and obey today. The very simple formula. And God, after you take your lickings like a man or a woman, if you are one, or even while you take your lickings like a man or a woman, God will begin to do mighty in you. Lord, help us. We're going to have a closing song of praise at this time. I ask praise team members to come forward and lead us. I think I'm going to got in the room right now. Miss Christian. That's New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo from June 27, 2021. I hope you've grown, reached new heights in Jesus while listening, and I hope you're serving right there, right where you are in your context. Now, if you're listening to this podcast and you like it, then go wherever you're listening to the podcast at 
and click follow the podcast and like the podcast and I'd prefer it if you'd share the podcast. We need to grow the following of this podcast as it is nothing but God's word and God's people worshiping and we are really looking to help people grow and it's a free service that you can provide, free service that we can provide, an opportunity to share with others. If you are outside the, the city of Toledo, then I ask you to pray for us. And if the Lord so leads, perhaps you could uh, make a trip this way or send funds to help with the ministry. Uh, you can text GIVE to 419-419-0095 to give. You can also give on the church website. You do not need to give in order to glorify God, but you need to give then right where you are, participating in your home church, working in your community, making a difference for Jesus. There is enough trouble in the world right now without followers of Jesus failing to be found faithful. Let us be found faithful reaching new heights in Jesus. If you are headed our way, services are 1130 on Sunday mornings. Bible study for adults is at 7 on Tuesday night and 630 for the kids. And then the kids end at 7.30, so the last half an hour the kids would be in with us, so maybe bring some something for them to color. We usually have things for them to color, that kind of thing, if they're going to sit at the tables while they listen in, overhear us doing the last of our Bible study. We meet in the cafeteria for adults on Tuesday night. We have lots and lots of mission and outreach going on, and we try to keep the website updated, but you know how that goes. And so what's most important is that we make a connection, text PARTNER, P-A-R-T-N-E-R, -E PARTNER, to that same phone number, 419-419-0095. If you want to participate with us and maybe help with some events or some things, uh, you can text VOLUNTEER there to get a volunteer application. You can text LSGIVE to get signed up to give to the Life Station specifically. You can share our Facebook page, go to our Facebook page, enjoy our Facebook page. You can review us on Google, review us on Facebook. Every opportunity that you get, everywhere you leave a, a review, everywhere you uh, serve or give will help this ministry to grow. And we are so appreciative of those who do that. And we just ask that God would move you to do so. And if he does move you to do so, that you'd be found faithful. In the meantime, share the gospel with everyone you possibly can and serve the Lord every moment of every day, asking yourself, what would God want me to do? And as long as you know it's of the Lord, then just do that. God bless you today. In the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ.